Amen. That's a good word. Thank you, Grant. Question to, uh, to start our time together this morning. How are you planning to stand before Almighty God on the Day of Judgment? How are you planning to stand in His presence on the Day of Judgment? Have you thought that through? Do you have a plan? See, if, if what we know from Scripture is true about life, we get 70, 75, 80, maybe 90 years, Lord willing, on this earth, and it's a vapor compared to eternity, you would think that human beings would spend a considerable amount of time asking that question. Well, what happens when I get to that, to that judgment seat? What happens on that day? Do I have a plan to be able to stand in his presence? Will we be bold and confident when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Think about this. We all have hidden sins in our past, don't we? Don't raise your hand. Maybe in your present. Sins that would be pretty embarrassing if they were made known. To your your family, to your close friends, to your church family. Even to strangers in the world, things that would be embarrassing. Those sins are known by God, every single one of them. Things you would hide from other human beings, you cannot conceal from Almighty God. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says this, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That's true. So someday we're going to stand utterly exposed before the Lord... And his righteous judgment, and all things will be uncovered. So, in light of that truth, let me ask the question again How do you plan to stand? How do you plan to be in his presence? What will you clothe yourself with? What is going to make you bold before a God who is all seeing and all knowing? Now, if you're a genuine follower of Christ and you know your Bible, you know the answer to those questions. But I want to address those in the audience who maybe haven't put their trust in Christ alone yet. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're, you're still doubting about who he is or what he's done. Maybe you're still searching for the truth about spiritual things. Maybe you're just not ready yet to surrender your life to him. So I ask you the question, are you prepared to stand in his presence someday based on your own record? Based on the record of your life, are you ready to stand? When every one of your thoughts, every motive, every word that you've ever spoken, every action, every behavior is made known. Are you prepared to be tested? And if you're thinking that you're going to pass the test on that day, if you're thinking God's just going to sweep your stuff under the carpet and let you go, or if you think somehow that you're going to be able to talk yourself out of that courtroom... Man, I got news for you this morning. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You need a plan. And the Apostle Paul is going to lay out a plan for you in our passage for this morning. So grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, go to verse 21. If you've been with us at all over the past seven months or so, you know that we're we're working our way through the book of Romans, and you probably know that we've just completed what I, I think is the most challenging part of the book, maybe the most challenging part of any book in the entire New Testament. 
verses 118 to 320, what we call the book of sin. Really the first of five smaller books within the book of Romans. The book of sin, 118 to 320. In fact, I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown here. Here are the five mini books within the book of Romans. So today we get to transition from the very bad news of the book of sin to the very good news of God's righteousness found in the book of salvation, which begins in chapter 3, verse 21, and runs through chapter 5. And so thus far, up to verse 20 in chapter 3, Paul has completed his indictment of the entire human race. And he has used some very strong language. There is nobody who is good. Nobody does good. None who are righteous, he said. Among natural men and women, there is nobody who understands, nobody who seeks after God. The entire race of Adam, both Jew and Gentile, are hopelessly fallen and plummeting towards judgment. That's God's analysis. That's God's verdict delivered through his apostle. And if we're honest with ourselves, we say, that's really hard to hear. I mean, that, you guys, if, you, if you're still here after seven months, you've heard it week after week, right? We've been talking about this really difficult news about natural man and natural woman and this condemnation that hangs over our head. It is difficult to hear. And people often get defensive when they hear this type of condemning language. We just, as human beings, we're wired to say, I just can't believe I'm not good. Or at the very least, I can't believe I'm not good enough. Or I, I, you just can't convince me that I'm not better than most. In our pride, we want so badly to disregard Romans 1 to 3. To convince ourselves that we're okay, that somehow things will work out, that we're going to pass the test in some way. But hear me this morning. If you will not accept the truth of Romans 1 to 3, then you have no place or part in Romans 3 to 5. That's why Paul starts there with the bad news before he gets to the good news. If you say, I reject Romans 1 to 3, just know you have no part in Romans 3 to 5 as we get to the the doctrine of salvation. And so as a part of this bad news section of Romans, Paul has made the case that the law that was delivered to Israel through Moses, this is the standard by which we'll be judged. But he says the law is not the problem. We're the problem, right? It's not the law. The law is holy and righteous and good, The problem is we haven't obeyed it. And the purpose and the function of the law, Paul says, is to make known to us the truth about our sinful condition. See, the law never had the power to save. That was not its intent. The only thing the law could really do is expose us, to show us how sinful we really are so that we understand that we need a Savior, that we need God's mercy. So this is the predicament that every son of Adam, every daughter of Adam finds himself or herself in. There is only one hope for us, and that is to somehow, some way, receive the righteousness of God so that someday we can stand before him clothed with his righteousness. That is the only hope that we have, everybody in this room. And because we have no power to dig down within ourselves, to muster it up, or to to find that righteousness within us, it has to come from some source on the outside. Friends, from chapter 1 to verse 320, Paul has been explaining to us why we need this righteousness, why we need it. If we haven't believed up to to this point, if we don't believe now that we need to be covered in his righteousness, then what Paul's going to say in chapters 3 to 5 is not going to make any sense to you. It's going to fall on spiritually deaf ears if you haven't believed what he's already said about your, your condition before him. 
But if our hearts have been struck with the reality of what Paul's been saying, if we believe the words of Scripture, and if we've discerned wisely and correctly, then what we're about to read, and this is not an overstatement, what we're about to read is the greatest news ever written. You are at that moment, 66 books, right? This, this huge Bible, we say, this may be the most important passage of Scripture in the entire book. Perhaps the greatest news ever written down right here in this passage. Are you ready for it? Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this verse now, Paul is returning to an idea he started way back in chapter 1. In fact, flip back to chapter 1, verse 16. Paul started talking about this very thing, and then he went off into this this, uh, this doctrine of sin, and now he's coming back to it. Look at 116 to 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's the key, verse 17. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 21. Paul picks up this thought, doesn't he? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested or or made known. The gospel has been communicated to us. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't have a fancy outline for you this morning. You know, pastors like to try to, you know, I need to come up with some creative way to communicate this truth here. This is just too basic and too essential to our faith and too important to give you some fancy outline. We're just going to literally sort of walk through these verses because they are absolutely loaded with gospel theology. You ready to go? Okay, let's start with this beautiful little Phrase in verse 21, but now, but now. Now, we read earlier in our call to worship, Ephesians 2, right? But God. These little buts are really important. They mark major transitions in the argument of Paul's letters. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is great news. This is great news. The righteousness that we need to be able to stand in his presence on the day of judgment has been made known to humankind. But now, so what this means is that Paul sees Jesus Christ as the center point of all of human history, right? He sees that the center is Jesus in his incarnation. When we talked, Grant talked earlier about the birth of Christ. It's the center point of, of, of human history. In his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus is the crux of all of history. That's the way Paul sees it. Everything before Jesus was then, after, everything after Jesus is now. He says, but now, because Jesus has been sent in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 says. In the perfect time, according to God's will, in the fullness. The law was powerless to save, but now, because God has sent forth his Son, the righteousness of God has now been revealed to us in the gospel. So is there a righteousness that can save us? Does it exist? A righteousness that will allow us to stand with confidence and boldness on that day. In spite of who we are, in spite of our 
our sinfulness? Is there a righteousness? And the answer is yes, and it's been revealed. It's a righteousness that can be received by sinners. That alone is shocking, is it not? That God acquits sinners. We'll see how in a second. In spite of our sin, he will do this. A righteousness that will withstand this divine examination of our lives on the day of judgment. So there is hope for us. There is hope for us. That's good news. But here's what we have to know and acknowledge. That righteousness does not come from within us. If we're going to count on our own righteousness, like I said earlier, we're in trouble. It doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come by our good works. We can't take God's grace and add our stuff to it. It doesn't come by that. It doesn't come through our attempts to keep God's law. Listen to this. God's righteousness has been made manifest completely apart from our doing. God did it. God didn't do it part way and we added to it. God did it. Apart from our doing. Luther, Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness. Which is sort of a weird term when we think of aliens, right? But it just means that it doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. It's alien to us. And yet it's applied to us. Friends, do you understand how good this news is? Are you grateful for this? Is this something that affects your life day to day? How does it affect your worship to, to, to meditate on these things? Have you memorized this passage? Do you meditate on it? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Do you remind yourself all the time of the goodness of God in the gospel? What a great passage to memorize. Luther actually said, he wrote this in the margin of his very famous German translation of the New Testament Greek. He wrote, this is the chief point. This is the chief point, he said, the very central place, not only of this epistle, but of the entire Bible. He wrote that in the margin in Romans 3.21. So again, let's come back to the question. How can you stand before Almighty God on the day of judgment? How can you stand boldly at His throne? Did you know... Proverbs 28.1 says, The righteous are bold as a lion. When you're righteous, you're bold. Well, how's righteous? Who can be bold because who's righteous? Here's the answer. Only one who possesses this righteousness of God. That's what Paul wants to tell us. Now, there's one other thing we have to look at in verse 21, and it's this, this phrase, being witnessed or being testified to by the law and the prophets. What does that mean? What does it mean, the law and the prophets? It means the Old Testament, right? The, wait, wait, are you, are you saying the gospel is testified to in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Man, we do, this, we, we do the Bible such a disservice when we bifurcate it and say, well, the Old Testament, boy, full of all, all that dark and you know, dreary stuff and judgment of God and God the Father is so angry and all that. We, don't, we bifurcate it, and, and we shouldn't. There is gospel and there is grace all over the Old Testament. That's the case that Paul's going to make. What's interesting here is that God's righteousness comes to us, he says, apart from the law, and yet it's witnessed by the law. It's apart from the law, but it's testified to by the law. Here's what that means. The gospel of God's righteousness is, is good news, but it's not new news. It's been around for a long, long time. In fact, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall. So Paul's saying to his readers in Rome, look, I'm not making this up. This is not new. I'm not the first person to talk about this. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of redemptive history. The fall happens in Genesis 3.15. We already see God's promise to crush the serpent, don't we? 
And the gospel is unleashed way back then, right after the fall. In chapter 4 of Romans, we're going to see Paul refer back to, of all people, Abraham, to Genesis 15, where it says Abraham was, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That, folks, is justification by faith alone in Genesis. A couple of verses later, he's going to talk about David. He's going to quote from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose sins have been covered. David needed a lot of covering, didn't he? Okay, so we have Abraham and we have David, these two great Old Testament Jewish figures, and both of them were saved by what? By, by grace, by faith alone. And the same theme runs through the prophets. We've already seen Paul quote from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1. Habakkuk said, the righteous will live not by works of the law, but by what? By faith. Oh my, more of the gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah probably saw this righteousness more clearly than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Listen to what he wrote in Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's Old Testament stuff right there. We have justification. We have substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. So we see the gospel all over the Old Testament. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Salvation has always been by faith, always been by faith, always by the mercy of God. Old Testament men like Abraham and David, we know that they were flawed like us, right? They needed God's grace. They believed God, they trusted in his promises, and they received this same alien righteousness from the Lord. All the time I get asked this question, whether it's at Masters or somewhere else, Jeff, I don't understand how are the Old Testament saints saved? And the answer is, short answer is, the same way we are today, by grace, through faith alone. They needed God's righteousness, just as we need to be clothed with God's righteousness. Same thing. Now, I'm not saying that the Old Testament saints saw everything as clearly as we do this side of the cross. They saw shape and form and and shadow, but certainly they were still saved by God's grace through faith alone. I don't think the idea ever entered Paul's mind like it does with us so often today that somehow there was one way to be saved in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. He never believed that. And the very fact that we're going to see him argue in the book of Romans for the gospel from the Old Testament tells you that that's true. Tells you that that's true. Now, let's skip over verse 22. Let's go to verse, we'll come back to it, but let's go to verse 23 And let's look at one of the more famous and well-known verses in all of Scripture, right? We all know this passage. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, here is the universe, the description of the universal problem that we have as human beings, right? And verse 24, by the way, is the remedy for it. 23, the all-encompassing problem. 24, the all-sufficient remedy for the problem. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. There are no exceptions, right? I keep looking for that exception in there. Oh, it's never there every time I look. No exceptions. That all is important, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it lines up with what Paul just wrote about this extreme language. None are righteous. All have sinned. And you're like, come on, isn't there a loophole here? No, all. All means all. In the Greek, all means all. That's what I've been told by my Greek experts out there. The Greek verb here for fallen short, and that's an important term, 
has within its range of meaning the idea of failing or lacking. But this picture of falling short really paints the right picture. It describes somebody who lacks the power to reach a goal. As hard as they try, they don't have the power to get there. So they've fallen short. And that's a a good description of what we're faced with as human beings. Because of our sin, our corrupted state, we simply don't have the power within ourselves to reach that goal of salvation. We don't have it. Now, it's fairly cliche, but I feel like I have to do this. Because this is the picture we always think of, right? When we think of falling short, we think of a guy on one edge of the Grand Canyon who wants to get to the other cliff, and there's no possible way he can do it. I mean, look at him. In his own power, is there any way he can jump across that chasm? Of course not, but that's, that's what we're faced with. As corrupt human beings trying in our own power to reach for salvation. Can't do it. Now, some people, if, if, if we got a whole bunch of humanity and we all lined up on one side of the cliff and we took a big old run and, boo, we jumped. Some of us are going to get farther than others. There might be some people in here I would get further than you. Still, at my age. But if LeBron James was next to me, I'm in trouble. He's going to get quite a bit further than me. But what's the reality? You, me, and LeBron are going to fall woefully short. That's the picture that we have here. We're all going to fall short. So that's what Paul's telling us. Now, how does the glory of God fit in here? What does it mean that we've fallen short of his glory? Let me first of all tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that our goal is to somehow be as God is. The goal, you know, we're going to be as glorious as him someday. Guys, we're not God. We never will be. So that's not what's being talked about here. It could never happen that we'll be as glorious as God. That's actually a blasphemous thought. I think what Paul's getting at is this. When we talk about the glory of God in this type of context, it's usually a reference to the splendor or the magnificence of his presence. And we know that there's this this place, the Bible describes it, eternal heaven, that's a very real place where God's redeemed people are going to experience the splendor of his presence in all its fullness. And by doing so, we get to share in his glory because we're in his presence. But again, because of the corruption within natural man and the guilt that's piled up against him, it's impossible for him to reach that heavenly goal to somehow share in God's glory for all eternity. We simply come up short of qualifying to be in his presence. And that'll be the verdict for every person who comes to the throne of of God with a debt for sin. The verdict is going to be gavel. Sorry, you've come up short. You've come up short. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Now let's look at the remedy. Look at verse 24. What's going to get us across that chasm? Right, Because that's the key question, right? What's going to get across that chasm? Verse 24, being justified as a, as a gift. Some of you have, I think ESV says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus or which came by Christ Jesus. That's how we get across the chasm. Now, hopefully you can see there, this, this verse is loaded with theological terms, and we're going to get a little bit technical here because these terms are going to show up again in the book of Romans. If we don't get it down now, we're going to have problems later. So do you see four really important theological terms or concepts in this verse? Do you see them? What's the first one? 
justified. What's the second one? Uh, go before grace. The gift, right, or freely. That's an important as well. Then you have grace, and what's the last one? Redemption. Listen, every, every believer in this room ought to be able to not only define those terms, but be able to expound on them. To be able to share as you're witnessing to people, to talk about these things. And if, and if you don't know those things yet, it's okay. But I'm exhorting you and encouraging you to get to know these things, to understand these terms, to be able to, to share your faith accurately. These are powerful words, powerful terms. Luther had it right. If you understand this verse correctly, you're going to have a, a solid grasp of the gospel. But if you don't understand this verse, you're going to find yourself weak in your faith. You're going to find yourself often confused in your faith. So we need to know this well. What's great about this verse is this really all about what God has done for us, not what we've done for ourselves. The language simply doesn't allow for what Mormons might believe or what Roman Catholics might believe about how, well, God does this much and then we do the rest. The language doesn't allow for it. This is about what God has done for us, what we call a monergistic work by himself. And that's really, really important to understand. So let's look at some of these things. First of all, being justified. Two things to notice here. First of all, that phrase, being justified, notice that the verb is passive. It's being justified, not justifying. If I were justifying, that would be active. But this is passive, being justified. In other words, Paul's not describing something that we've done. He's describing something that's been done to us. Did you catch that? That's really important. That's what I mean by passive. This is something that's being done to us by another. Make sense? Justifying is something that God does. It's not something that we do. We're being justified. God is the one who's acting. We're the ones who are being acted upon. And that's how salvation works. He is active. We are passive. It's a work of God from start to finish. That's, Paul's going to reinforce that idea over and over again in the book of Romans. So the passive nature of that, of that phrase, being justified, is very important. Secondly, when the righteousness of God is given to us, and we'll talk about how that happens in just a moment, when this alien righteousness that comes from God is given to us or applied to us, we have to ask the question, in what sense do we receive it? Okay, we don't earn it. It's given freely. We're going to see that in a second. We receive the righteousness of God. In what sense do we receive it? Here's the question. Are we made righteous or are we simply declared to be righteous? And the answer is we're simply declared to be righteous. We're not made righteous here. God's righteousness is counted as ours. Think about that. It's reckoned as, right, as his righteousness applied to us. God's act of justification is not a change within us. It's something that happens outside of us. I'm going to say this again. It's not done in us. It's done for us. I know we're getting technical here. So what I'm saying is it's done instantaneously in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. We're declared righteous. It doesn't practically change our nature or our character in that instantaneous moment. We're simply declared to be righteous. So here's what really happens. This is, this is the big idea. When we're justified, in a passive sense, our standing before God changes. Okay, think of it that way. Our standing be, in the instant, our standing before God changes. 
changes. We are declared to be righteous. We are credited with his righteousness. Guys, this is the distinction between justification and sanctification. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Justification is in an instant. It's not a process. Now, this is where our Roman Catholic friends make a huge error. It's one of the most egregious errors that they make. They believe that justification is a process of God's grace being applied and our works being added to it. So we're justified over time as long as we continue to do good works. That's not what Scripture says. They're confusing those two things. Sanctification is different. That is done in us over time. In sanctification, our character, our practical nature does change because the Spirit is changing us within. Okay? I know that was a lot. So justification done outside of us for us, declared righteous, sanctification done in us where our practical nature changes over time. We've got to get that straight or else we're going to be confused. So justification is a monergistic or solo act of God whereby he once and for all declares us to be righteous in his sight. You guys, that is unbelievable. That ought to drive you to your knees. As sinful as you are, as sinful as I am, God applies his righteousness to us and says, Daniel, you are righteous in my sight. Wow. Josh, you too. (laughs) Don't look so surprised. (laughs) Right? Rob, I could go around the room. God has declared you righteous in his sight. Hallelujah, right? It's amazing. All right, as a gift or freely. This is pretty simple, right? The same Greek word is used here that we see in Revelation twenty-two seventeen that says this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life do so without cost. Freely. As a gift. And the point here is very simple. The language isn't hard to understand. We're justified in such a way that we can't pay for it. You have no currency to pay for your justification. In fact, this is one of my favorite questions to ask unbelievers when I'm sharing my faith. I'm going to say, look, you owe a debt. I mean, you, you can get people to admit that they've done some things wrong. Most people, okay. You owe a debt. What's the currency that you're taking with you into the next life? Uh, I don't know. That's the point. You can't pay for it. You have no currency. Okay? So it's, this is given to us as a gift. The righteousness of God is given to you freely, free of charge. You can't purchase justification. You don't have, it's way above your pay grade. You don't have that type of currency. Thirdly, by His grace. Now, is grace important? Yeah, Paul uses the word grace 95 times in his letters. This is a little bit important. What does he mean here? The easiest way to figure out what he means. In fact, look over to Romans chapter 4 and look at verses 4 and 5 real quick. It's a good example of what he means by grace. Romans 4, 4 says, Now to the one who, what, works, his wage is not credited as a favor or credited as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, the one who didn't work, his faith is credited as righteousness. So if you work for somebody, you don't get grace from him or her. You get a wage. Why? Because you earned it. I mean, you could ask your employer, look, I'm going to work a 40-hour week. Don't pay me. 
I, I would just prefer grace from you, but you're not going to get your bills paid very well. Right? We work in order to receive a wage. That's the whole point here. So if you're going to receive something by grace, you can't work for it. And again, this is where our Roman Catholic friends have this wrong. If you're working to obtain God's grace, that's actually an oxymoron. You cannot work to get God's grace because as soon as you work for it, you nullify it. You wipe it out. Why? Because grace is the good that you get from somebody who owes you nothing. You might have to listen to this message a second time to get all this. But that's really important. The difference between earning a wage and receiving God's grace. So the phrase as a gift means you can't pay for God's righteousness. And the phrase by his grace means you can't work for it. Again, it feels very passive, doesn't it? That's because God's the active agent in salvation, of course. And you say, okay, well, that's great, Jeff. This is sounding like a really good deal for me. I don't do anything. This is fantastic. I don't pay for it. I don't work for it. There's still something that's not quite adding up. If we don't pay for God's righteousness, and if we don't work for it, then what is the basis by which God freely gives out his righteousness? And here's the bigger question. How does he maintain his justice if he's just willy-nilly running around giving out grace to everybody? How can we call God just if he's just giving grace away freely? These are big questions. But the answer is in the last statement. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What is redemption? Have you ever redeemed a bottle, glass bottle? No, we don't do that anymore, do we? I just realized I dated myself. When I was a kid, we'd go to the batting cages and we'd get these, those old Coke bottles. They were fantastic. And you drink your Coke and you go back into the shop and you give it back to them. And what do they do? Give you payment. You've redeemed that bottle. You got paid back for it. I bought it, I drank the Coke, I got some money back. It's fantastic. I don't know why we don't do that anymore. (laughs) Redemption means deliverance at a cost. Release by a payment. Releasing something by a payment. So embedded in the word redemption, in the original language, is this Greek word lutron, which means ransom. So when you think redemption, think ransom. Okay, In redemption, someone's release is accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. And we know what the ransom is, right? We, we know this from Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross so that you and I, the sinner, won't have to. He paid the ransom for us. Folks, this is how God's justice is maintained as he freely gives the gift of grace. Because payment was rendered. This is really important to understand. God is just because payment was rendered. It's just that it fell on Christ and not on you. I always tell people when I'm sharing my faith, look, God will render a payment for every single debt of sin. Do you want to carry it or do you want Jesus to carry it? Because one of those two things will happen. Always, because God is just. He will render a payment for sin. It was actually paid. The full cost for all of your sins was actually paid at Calvary. And so God's justice is maintained. That's really important. Meditate on this. Some of you guys have heard this phrase before. The double imputation. How many of you guys have heard that phrase? Think about this for a second. Your sins, all of them. I don't know how many you have. I got millions, I'm sure. 
all of them that were committed my life, were assigned to Jesus. They were imputed to him. And all of his righteousness, which you can't even fathom, was assigned to you, imputed to you. Are you kidding me? How is this not the best news you've ever heard? Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us. We could spend a lifetime, you guys, studying that and singing songs and worshiping him because of this. Finally, let's see how the righteousness of God then is taken hold of. How is it received by us? Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through, through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. This is how we receive it. This is how we appropriate it. This is how we get the righteousness of God, simply by faith. And let's be clear. We're not justified by being religiously sincere. We're not justified by having the best of intentions towards other people. We'll fall short if that's, if that's the standard. We're not justified by, by coming to church, right? By being in a church. Well, I was in a church building so many Sundays of my life. No, fall short. We're not justified by doing works of charity. We're not justified by striving to be the best person we can be. We're not justified by being, air quotes, spiritual. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. We'll fall short. We're not even justified by having faith in general. Do you know that faith in faith will not save you? That's a tricky one, and sometimes evangelicals will fall for this. My faith is strong. Faith in what? Faith in your faith? Fall short. What does the text say? Through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is credited to us when we believe in God and His promises and we place our faith solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's it. We believe in God, we trust His promise, His word is true, and we put our faith solely in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins. That's it. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in a person. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And let's also be clear about this. I'm not talking about intellectual assent. I'm not talking about where I say, I believe in my mind that that's true, and then I go on living my life. That's just, that's head knowledge, and that can be an idol, can it not? I just have lots of head knowledge, but it hasn't gotten to my heart. It's not genuine, authentic faith. It's just intellectual assent. Be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't end up at the judgment seat someday, and all it was was mental assent. Oh, I just knew a lot about the Bible. Not good enough. We fall short. Saving faith in Jesus Christ will always be manifested in a practical way of living, that reflects the authenticity of our trust, the head and the heart coming together as we die to ourself, as we live to serve others, a gradual surrendering of all things, a transformed life, our affections and our desires being changed and spiritual fruit being produced. Those things, by the way, don't add to the righteousness of God in any way. They are not salvation, but they are the evidence that our trust in God is true. And so they have to be present. So there's a ton here. Let me just wrap up. I want to give you one last Old Testament verse, and then we'll finish, because I know I've sort of rocked your head enough for one day. But look at Isaiah 61.10. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Look at the beauty of this language. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul 
will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. I didn't earn those garments. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Isaiah doesn't see any active work on the part of man. Man is passive in this. God is wrapping. God is clothing. Isaiah saw it. Paul saw it. This is what we need, the righteousness of God. As we stand before him someday, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, or else we will fall short. So how are you planning to stand in that day? Spend some time on this, you guys. Look, as I said earlier, life is a vapor. Eternity is huge. Spend some time meditating on this. How do I plan to stand on the day of judgment? There's only one way. By faith alone, the righteousness of God applied to us by faith alone. It's always been by faith alone. So rejoice and believe in that. Put your trust in Christ alone. Be clothed in his righteousness on that day. That is the solid rock on which we stand. His righteousness, not ours. What do we bring? We come to him humbly. We come to him helpless. We don't come with a payment. We don't come with any, any works. We just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. That's it. That is the beauty of the gospel. Pray with me, would you?